thousand words, five thousand individual entries, four hundred fifty-three pages, two hundred seventy-one stories covered, eighty original illustrations. It all adds up to one book: the James Bond lexicon. The unofficial guide to the worlds of James Bond in movies, novels, TV, and comics by Alan J. Porter and Jillian J. Porter. Now available from White Rocket Books and via your favorite online bookstore. For more information, visit the companion website at jamesbondlexicon.online or follow us on Twitter at bondlexicon. On Her Majesty's Secret Podcast presents. James Bond versus spy movies. In this episode, it's 1962, and Dr. No is going to square off against the Manchurian candidate. Yes, indeed, we're going to score each of today's films on a scale of one through ten in five categories, and those categories are... Story, the hero, the villain, overall spectacle, and best spy moment. And then there will be the deduction round where up to 10 points could be subtracted from a film's total for whatever we determine is the lowest point of the movie, if it has one. Before we get going here, folks, just a little spoiler warning. I know these films are pretty long in the tooth, but hey, if you've not seen Dr. No, And if you haven't seen The Manchurian Candidate, you're going to want to do that before listening. Okay, that's your spoiler warning. Back to the show. Thank you, Jared. And actually, before we get into the intros, I just want to say welcome, everybody, to the first episode of this brand new series on on Her Majesty's Secret Podcast. What three tracks did you pick for him? (laughs) (laughs) Damn, the wrong one, yeah? (laughs) Well, let's ask our guest. uh, Let's ask Jason. Did you pick um, your three favorite tracks for this episode? Oh, my three favorite tracks? Oh, <laughs> man, I forgot what episode I was <laughs> I was on. No, I, th- I thought this formula looked pretty familiar, but, you know, I leave the music to you guys. Except, right. for, except for Living Daylights, where I guessed on that one, and that was a lot of fun. So let's turn this into a shameless plug, and if people haven't <laughs> listened to Six of the Best, they're still out there. Go back and listen to them. Five years worth of music fun to go listen to, but we're off on a new direction today. And um, we're starting with the James Bond versus Spy movies. And actually, a, a shout out to Jason. Jared mentioned this previously, but I think it was all sparked from Jason's idea, plus some stuff that I threw out there. And it sort of all came in the melting pot that produced this idea of looking at a uh, James Bond movie and a, another spy movie that came out the same year and doing a compare and contrast pretty much in the line of the Lombard Crusade action film face-off that Jason and Jared do. So thanks to Jason and for the idea and Jared for listening to my ideas and realizing the two were sort of overlapping and <laughs> helping brainstorm this, this new show. So we hope you enjoy the new show and you are along with us for the ride. So this episode, as, as I've already mentioned, we have our first guest in Jason Albrick, also known as Agent Weasel Skull. So welcome, Jason. Along for the ride is Jared Elbrick, of course, the odd sale artist and producer extraordinaire who puts all this stuff together. And myself, uh, Alan Porter, uh, sometimes known as Tex. We are happy to have you along for the show. Okay, gentlemen, let's go ahead and take our hidden cyanide capsules. Wait, 
we can't do that now. We got a show to do, don't we? <laughs> anyway, we'll Wait skip that. Part. Show, yeah. <laughs> we'll skip. I, I always knew those cigarettes that you smoked were a bit dodgy. So. <laughs> All right. Let's learn a bit about today's films. And let's start with 1962's Dr. No. My name is Bond, James Bond. My instructions were implicit. I was to leave for Jamaica in two hours. License to kill. Now you maybe miss it. You don't miss a thing. I decided to accept your invitation. I have to leave immediately. Just as things were getting interesting again. Bond, 007, licensed to kill whom he pleases, where he pleases, when he pleases. From the elegant club rooms of Mayfair to exotic island night spots. Good evening. Who pays you? You. Tell us. A strange adventure of intrigue, treachery, and love. Oh, Mr. Bond, I was thinking, why don't you collect me at my apartment? It's lovely up here in the mountains. Her directions were easy to follow, and she sent a few of her friends to make sure I didn't get lost. She thought I was dead, but I proceeded to prove her wrong. I thought it was always polite to knock first. Before shooting. Honey, from our very first meeting, was everything her name implied. She clung to me like a wet bathing suit. But business as usual came first. The pace was killing. I thought you less stupid. I could have had you killed in the swamp. And why didn't you? You damaged my organization. Unfortunately, I misjudged you. You are just a stupid policeman whose luck is run out. Maybe it was my luck. Up to my neck in hot water. Or something blowing up in my face. You live dangerously with the superbly resourceful James Bond. Exclusive screen dramatization of the book that has entertained millions of viewers. The exotic and tantalizing Dr. No. Some people will go to any extremes for a little privacy. I almost feel silly doing this on a show where we have a lot of Bond listeners. So we're not going to tell you a lot of stuff you don't know. Just assume we're doing a show for first-time listeners for you longtime Bond fans. Here's your cast and crew of Dr. No. It stars a guy named Sean Connery and another guy named Joseph Wiseman and Ursula Andress is directed by Terrence Young. 
Your synopsis goes a little bit like this. James Bond is sent to find out why their Intel station in Jamaica has stopped broadcasting. His investigations lead him to Crab Key, the hidden lair of Dr. No. James Bond must stop Dr. No's plan to topple the U.S. efforts in the space race and learn a little bit about an organization known as Spectre. Doubtful that will come up again. All right, here is your trivia on Dr. No. And I try to dig a little deeper. So if, again, if you're longtime Bond fans listening to the show, we appreciate it. I might not tell you a lot of stuff you don't already know, but I dug a little deeper so you won't be getting like, it's the first Bond film. I'm going to leave, although it was, I'm going to leave. <laughs> here are your three trivia nuggets. Okay, this was chosen to be the inaugural Bond movie because the plot from the source novel was the most straightforward and it only had one major location, of course, in Jamaica and only one big special effects set piece. So it was chosen first because it was easy to make. Trivia nugget number two. Maurice Bender designed the gun barrel opening at the last minute by pointing a pinhole camera through a real gun barrel. The actor in the sequence, of course, is not Sir Sean Connery, but stuntman Bob Simmons. And Connery didn't film his own sequence for the gun barrel until 1965's Thunderball. Okay, I kind of knew the second part, but I didn't know the first part. There was a pinhole through a real gun barrel. That's cool. <laughs> I always thought it was a graphic effect. And finally, Connery's suits for this film were made by Savile Row Taylor named Anthony Sinclair. Sinclair stated that a truly great bespoke suit would be able to stand up to a good deal of abuse, such as being grabbed by the lapels, and still look great afterwards. To prove his point, Sean Connery was asked to sleep in the suit. When he woke up the next morning, he was stunned to see that it looked fantastic. I think most things would look fantastic on 1962, Sean Connery. <laughs> so, you know, hey, there you have it. Over to you, Alan. All right, so let's take a look at this episode's challenger the Manchurian Candidate. The 1962 version, obviously, not the more modern one with Denzel Washington. Sorry, right. Jared. Uh-oh. You, you watched the wrong movie, didn't you? <laughs> well, well, I'll get back to you. <laughs> it wouldn't be a uh, first. <laughs> All right, so The Manchurian Candidate, 1962 version. Frank Sinatra, Lawrence Harvey, and Janet Lee, and was directed by John Frankenheimer. Here's a, uh, the quick synopsis from Letterboxd. Near the end of the Korean War, a platoon of US soldiers is captured by the communists and brainwashed. Following the war, the platoon is returned home and Sergeant Raymond Shaw is lauded as a hero. However, the platoon commander, Major Ben Marco, finds himself played by strange nightmares Ooh. and soon races to uncover a terrible plot. Da, da, da. So I, I dug a bit as well and uh, tried to look at some other trivia. 
So let's lead off with, with Mr. Sinatra, and something that I found actually quite surprising. There's an excellent fight scene in here, and we'll probably talk about it at some point, between Frank Sinatra and another actor called Henry Silver. And during the fight scene, Frank Sinatra actually broke his finger filming the fight scene, and it never healed properly, and apparently it gave him pain for the rest of his life. His schedule was too busy for him to go to the hospital, and he just left it, and it uh, remained slightly crooked and painful for the rest of his life. And a couple of th- other things that sort of turned out about the fight. Henry Silver claims that it was the two of them. There was no stunt doubles involved. And it's a pretty brutal action-packed fight scene. So that's really cool. And it's actually also one of the earliest uses of martial arts in a Hollywood movie. So a lot of stuff packed in around that, that fight. Second point, there's a sequence early on in the movie where one of the characters, a U.S. senator called John Isling, seen aboard a what is essentially his private plane to fly him around on a election campaign. But it turns out that's actually Frank Sinatra's private jet. Frank had obviously used it to fly in and they just it was there on set, so they, they used it rather than hiring it. Another one, good way of keeping the budget down. Though I'm sure Frank's charged them. Thirdly and lastly, um, there's an actor in this called Joe Adams who plays a military psychiatrist, and this really astounded me. In this movie, he was actually the first black actor in a Hollywood production to be cast in a part that wasn't specified as being for a black character. Interesting. And the fact it took till 1962 for that to happen, I think it's a terrible indictment of Hollywood, but it's actually cool that you see it in that moment. I think it's very cool. Okay. Now that we have the basics on today's films, let's start the discussion. Okay, before we get started, let's set your score barometer. We're going to be scoring in these different categories on a scale of 1 to 10, and 5 is average. 5 is okay. Something you'd see on a decent made-for-TV movie. 4, 3, 2, 1, not so good. 6, 7, 8, 9, 10. That's a pretty good flick right there. And with that, let's get into category 1. Category 1 is the story. How engaging or original is your story? We start with Jason, and we start with Dr. No. I think the story was relatively basic at its core. The interesting moments were the moments themselves, right? Where you get to know the characters and you see the characters interact. There's the mysterious element of Dr. No and what he's up to. And it's cool that we don't really get to see him till right about the third act of the film. So there's mystery that's woven in here. And the thing that I I liked about Dr. No, story-wise, in the James Bond franchise, this is one of those that you get to see some detective skills that James Bond really employs. There's some analysis, there's some thought, there's picking up clues that some of the more action-oriented later Bonds, they don't have quite so much. So that's something that I, I really liked was the mystery element of it. Other than that, the plot itself was pretty, you know, pretty simple, pretty basic, where you're getting, you know, James Bond on a collision course with the, the villain du jour. So those are my thoughts coming out of the gate. Alan, thoughts on the story of Dr. No? Have you seen it before this episode or? Uh, once or twice. <laughs> I actually put something on Twitter. I actually spotted on the rewatch. I spotted something that I had not spotted over the last 50 years of watching this movie. Oh, wow. Um, I saw what you put on there too. I was, yeah, this is, like, there's a I scene in, this again. Yeah, there's the scene where I'm diverting slightly, but the scene where Bond and uh, the police commissioner turn up at Strangway's house to do 
some of the detective work that uh, Jared was saying, the, the police commissioner does a uh, sort of looks sideways uh, across the garden and then sort of shrugs and, and walks in the house. Never really thought anything of it. And on this rewatch, I actually noticed that in the far distance on the other side of the garden, what he's looking at is the three blind mice, the assassins, actually walking past. Oh, yeah, path. yeah. I did see you put that on. Yeah, social and I never, never noticed that in all the years. And thankfully, a lot of, not everybody went, well, of course. A lot of other people were like, oh, I didn't know that either. And they'd come back and rewatch. So I didn't know either, Alan. So, <laughs> so you, you, that's one for so me cool. as well. But yeah, picking up on what Jason said, and I just mentioned, for me, this is one of my favorite Bond stories because this is Bond doing his job. You know, he's sent out to investigate something. And what do you know? He actually does investigate. He follows clues. He's a proactive detective. And a lot of the other movies, which as much as we enjoy them, he's reacting to stuff. Here he's been very proactive, uh, working with his status as a government agent, following clues, making connections, goading the bad guys to actually make mistakes. So, yeah, I, I actually really enjoy this one. I, I, I get what Jason says about it being a fairly basic plot, but I think it's a basic plot that works exceptionally well. And again, it, uh, you know, being a Fleming geek, it's actually also one of the ones that is a pretty close adaptation to the source material. So that always gets high marks from me is when they stick fairly close to the source material. So. Um, yeah, one of my favorite Bond stories, mainly because, like I said, this is, as we're being introduced to Bond, we get to find out who he is and what he does and actually see him in action um, using his intelligence, using his craft, being a, a, a detective as well as a spy. So, yeah, really enjoy it. I concur with you both and don't have a whole heck of a lot to add. Maybe just a reminder to our listening audience, too, it's sometimes you can look back on a movie like Dr. No and... It does seem exceptionally simple by today's standards, too. But we always have to remind ourselves that exotic travel to Jamaica was really cool in 1962. <laughs> you know, it's it's fairly accessible now, not so much back then. So you got to have to factor in. There's a bit of a wow factor that's lost to time, I think, when it comes to the story. And like toppling rockets, the rockets are awesome, especially in 1962. <laughs> so you got to have to put that lens on it. Uh, having said that, let's go ahead and flip over to the Manchurian Candidate and go back to Jason and his thoughts on this thriller, I would say. Well, I won't put words in Jason's mouth. He can describe the movie how he wants. Go for it, Jason. I think thriller is a good description of it and a bit of a mystery as well. You know, we get some good reveals on who the masterminds are behind this plot. And it is a very intricate plot. Whereas, and when I say Dr. No is simple, I don't mean bad. I just mean it's that formula that we know and we love. It's very close to the Fleming novel and the formula that that he himself created. So when I look at the Manchurian Candidate, there's a lot of twists and turns. There's a lot of layered characters. There are things that are happening that are intertwining setting things into motion like dominoes falling and you have to really pay attention throughout the course of the film and you'll pick up clues or not if you're not paying attention and, and it's also set during the korean war not a whole lot of hollywood films about korea you know you look at the ones if you think about the korean war i think you think about mash the movie and the television series Beyond that, you know, there's a reason why they call it the Forgotten War. So so it's interesting to see these characters, how they served together in the war, what they were like, their lives after the war. And in between that mystery of what happened to them and why did it happen 
And what is this terrible event that's being put in place by this mysterious enemy? Really good thriller, really good mystery. I enjoyed it quite a bit. Alan? I think Jason really hit, hit it with this one. It is very complex plot-wise. It is interesting that you said about what happened to them and why did it happen? I mean, right out of the gate, we know what happened to them. They don't pull any punches about the fact that these guys were caught and brainwashed and we see that whole process. But what, the why of it, as you said, is very slowly revealed throughout the movie. And as you said, you know, little visuals, a few words here, a few words there, and it all starts to come together until you get the whole you know, plot revealed pretty much right towards the very end of the, of the movie. It really pulls you in. I found I was totally captivated by it and, and, and I had to really stay in the moment. You know, there was no picking up the phone. There was no checking stuff out, no going on IMDb to see who so-and-so is or any of that stuff while I was watching it. I mean, you know, I was completely engrossed in it and beautifully written and acted. I think there's a reason that this has remained an absolute classic thriller. If you've never seen it, I highly, highly recommend that you go watch it. And I'm going to agree with Alan and Jason both. It's an excellent thriller. It is definitely, as they both indicated, a pay attention movie. Don't don't, don't bring up the phone. Yes, she's the lady for murder, she wrote. You don't have to look it up. <laughs> uh, you got to stay focused. And it's uh, it got a good payoff and an excellent, excellently shot. And I'm sure we will talk about that. And in this one, murder, she literally wrote. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we will certainly have um, um, certain things to say in the villain category, but I will say this as far as, the, as far as the story goes, it is always fascinating to watch a film like this where one of your main villains, it's not his fault. Like he's programmed. Like he's not necessarily, he's not a bad guy. It's, yeah. it's, it's weird. So that adds a, a level to it that you don't see in a lot of stories, which I think sets this one apart. Yeah. All right, now there's nothing left to do but double back and score these films on a scale of 1 to 10 in our first category here of story. So, Alan, on a scale of 1 to 10, looking at Dr. No, how much do you like that story? Uh, like I said, Dr. No is one of my favorite Bonds, and I like the, the, the basic story. I like the original novel, too, so it's a 9 out of 10 for me for Dr. No. Excellent. Jason? I do love the story of Dr. No. It is very close to the novel. I'm going to give it an eight. And I also will give it an eight. I think it is very, very simple, but I also think it's very, very well executed. And that's why it's going to get a high mark. All right, let's go back to Jason for his score on the story of the Manchurian Candidate. One to ten, Jason. I'm going to give this one a ten. It's my first one coming out of the gate. This is a classic. I can attest it holds up today because I watched it and couldn't take my eyes off of it. And I started thinking about how it influenced, you know, we talked about a, it's had a remake with Denzel Washington. I also remember this television series with Christian Slater called My Own Worst Enemy, which is kind of essentially the same thing about somebody that's programmed to be an assassin and his alter ego doesn't know it. And so it's just been duplicated over time. This is a classic for a reason. 10 for me. Alan? I'm going with Jason. This one is a 10 for me. I think it's a perfectly written thriller. Suspenseful, beautifully layered. Virtually every line of dialogue has some meaning. Incredibly engrossing and an engaging movie. 
I'm gonna be the bummer here and give it a nine. <laughs> what? <laughs> wow. God, I liked it. I liked it quite a bit, but I felt like it did have some lulls in places. I wish it was a little more tightly edited. That's the only thing that keeps the story from being a crisp 10 for me. You know me. Once a movie gets over 90 minutes, I start giving it the side eye. (laughs) Basically, if you're not James Bond, you don't get a free pass. (laughs) You better have a canon film production. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. You got me on that one. But yeah, I'll get it a nine. And those are some high marks across the board from all of us. And that will bring us to the end of category one. I'll hand it to Alan for his category two. Thanks, Jared. And with Category 2, we're going to pick up on the hero and talk about how cool or memorable was the hero of this movie. So uh, as before, we'll kick off things with Jason. So uh, Jason, just how cool is James Bond? We're recording this on Sunday during the playoffs. You're wearing a Baltimore Ravens shirt. There are very few things that would interrupt this very American tradition. But for the three of us, This is one, the chance to talk about James Bond. So that is how cool James Bond is to us. I'm going to just come out and say that's, you know, there's going to be a lot of homerism about the hero in this entire room, I think. And when we look at Dr. No, we think of those those moments, those first lines, Bond, James Bond, when he's lighting that cigarette and how cool he looks. Often imitated, never duplicated. That's what I say. I mean, Sean Connery took it, owned it, ran with it, and we're getting on the ground floor here. Oh, and the time when he assassinates uh, Professor What's-His-Nuts with him. Oh, just like, you've had your six. You know, just cold-blooded. Oh, I'm, okay, I'm gushing. Ten, sorry, I'm ahead. <laughs> we'll double back. We'll double back on that. We'll double back. Hold it in, Albrecht, hold it in. <laughs> That's it. Professor Dent is always going to be Professor What's-His-Nuts from this point on. <laughs> <laughs> With that, uh, let's pass it on to, to Jared to get his opinions on Mr. Bond, James Bond. Here's the thing. 10, 10, 10, 10, 10, 10, 10, 10, 10, 10, 10, 10, and also 10. No further questions. Alan? <laughs> okay, everything Jason said, it's beginning of one of the greatest movie characters of all time. He looks great. He's perfectly cast, even though Fleming didn't seem to think so at the time. And doesn't get any better than this. So yeah, I, I can't add much. You can try if you want to, Alan. But yeah, this is this is the pinnacle of great spy heroes. This is going to be a category throughout the entirety of the show that we're doing here. <laughs> James Bond versus spy movies. It's going to be very hard for someone to compete in. Very true. But as you said, as Jason said, this is the beginning. You said it's the beginning. It's laying the foundation. You know, and what we had is how how memorable is the hero? How cool is the hero? This is a hero that's. We've got 60 years of movies. Is there any other movie lead character that has 60 years history? Only Godzilla, I think. (laughs) Yeah. So maybe we need to do a Bond versus... uh, Anyway, all right. Did you say Bond versus Godzilla? (laughs) Or Dracula, maybe Dracula. (laughs) Um, Yeah, or Holmes. But okay, yeah, and and Tarzan. Okay, I'm starting to think of some more now. But the whole point is, yes, it's cool. Um, And I think we agree. So I think we all know what we're going to score this one. So let's go back to the Manchurian Candidate. And Jason, what did you think of the hero? Who was the hero of this movie? I think it was Major Marco. In my mind, he's the protagonist. He's the one that you're following 
his development. He's going through the changes. He's the first to really start having the nightmares and start questioning what happened. And things start happening to him, setbacks and things that he has to overcome. And I'll tell you, coming out of the gate for our first episode, we put somebody pretty strong up against old Sean when we put blue eyes in there. And he was a presence on that screen. And I'm not talking about in the way that we normally associate Frank Sinatra with that magnetism and that tough guy kind of look with that suave. He was kind of kind of the American version of a of a James Bond back in back in that day. But here we see him. He's strong. He's vulnerable. He's questioning his sanity in some cases. So we get to see a really good range of Frank Sinatra in this movie. And when I saw him in that those class A uniforms and he has the first infantry division combat patch, the same com- he's my alma mater, he's got the same combat patch I do. Oh, that bumped it up. That bumped it up. So again, a little homerism and it's Frank Sinatra so you get what you expect, but I felt like we got a little bit more from the protagonist in this movie. I would agree with you. I actually think this is the best acting job I've ever seen Frank Sinatra do in any of the movies. In a lot of the others, he's Frank Sinatra. In this one, I forgot he was Frank Sinatra, if that makes sense. Jared, what did you think? Jason really hit the nail on the head for me when he mentioned he had to play a character who's unsure of himself, right? He's the only one sort of awakening to what happened, and now he has to second-guess his own actions and the actions of others. And yeah, that's where Frank really excels here. That's, I think, why he breaks out of the I'm playing Frank Sinatra mold is that he has to play a less confident guy with a certain amount of confidence, if that makes any sense. And, you know, just kind of a weird side note, when I first saw the trailers for Skyfall, there was the scene where he was talking with the psychiatrist and he was doing word association. And in the trailer, the psychiatrist guy says Skyfall and James Bond gets up and walks out in the trailer. And the whole time when I first saw that trailer, I thought, oh, this is going to be like a Manchurian K, like Bond's been programmed. There's a certain keyword that triggers, and this is going to be awesome. It was not the case. But it was this movie that made me think that that movie might be what it's about. And now all of a sudden, I want to see that movie. Anyways, I've, I've derailed. Uh, let's get back on track to the heroes. Uh, Frank played it great. And yeah, he's. I've seen a lot of Frank Sinatra movies. I've liked him in everything I've seen. He's just one of these super talented guys. It's a great singer and also a great actor. And uh, yeah, look for a good score. This is like Jason this is a good, good opponent for old Sean coming out of the gate. And I got to say, my man, he landed the girl. I mean, basically, he like spilled coffee on her in the train, tried to smoke in her face, was all unsure of himself. And she's still giving him the address. She broke up with her fiance. <laughs> well, I mean, it's Frank Sinatra. He had bond <laughs> level magnetism. That's what I'm trying to say. Even at his lowest ebb. He was still laying in the ladies, so there we go. And I actually did want to call out that lowest death. That scene on the train of him trying to light a cigarette when he's going through the, all that mental turmoil, and he can't even do something as simple as light a cigarette. I thought that was just amazing piece of acting and direction because there was so much built into that scene of all the mental turmoil he's going in, him not being sure of himself, he's questioning his own sanity, he's got the shakes, he's not a combat soldier anymore, he's not... The military, you know, he's not doesn't even like to talk when she asks him what he does and stuff. He's very hesitant about saying that he's a major in the army. He really doesn't want to even admit that. 
but just that whole scene of him just trying to do something as simple as light a cigarette and it all, you know, and he just can't do that because of everything he's going through, I thought was brilliantly, brilliantly done. I actually want to pick up on, and I know I'm sort of stepping on, on a bit into the next category, but what about Raymond Shaw? Isn't he a hero too? They want you to believe he is. Yeah. <laughs> he, he is at the end though, isn't he? Spoilers. Yeah, I think so. You bring up a good point. Raymond Shaw had some terrible things done to him. When I look at the track he was on, there was only one outcome that I saw, and that's how it ended. The moment that they had him kill his wife, to me, that was one of the most brilliantly acted pieces or directed pieces or acted and directed pieces. When he kills the wife and they say, you know, he doesn't remember any of it. He does it coldly and he comes out and there are tears just running down his face. That, oh man, that almost got got my waterworks going. So to answer your question, yes, he was the hero. I think what I say, he's the protagonist in the story, though. I don't think so. I, I think he was on a track that was could only end in one destination. Yeah, I think you're right there. Jared, any thoughts on Raymond Shaw as the hero? Oh, Jason said it really well. So, uh, no, I agree with Jason wholeheartedly. Okay. Well, I guess with that, we'll move on to scoring. So let's uh, start off with Jason on Dr. No. Uh, I think I can just fill in the spreadsheet, can't I? With uh, Yeah, you can just cut and paste that 10 <laughs> that I said like 10 minutes ago. <laughs> no, it's 10 for me. For all the reasons we said, this this was the, the starter pistol, and Sean Connery hit the stride right out of the gate and took the lead and never gave it up. And Jared? 10. Yeah, and 10 for me. So uh, let's move on to the hero of the Manchurian candidate. And how much are we going to score Frank Sinatra's Major Marco? Jason. Mm, this is tough. I'm going to give him a nine. Like, this was solid, solid acting. The only thing that keeps him from getting a 10 is that he's not James Bond. I mean, other than that, He's in elite level acting in this film. I don't know if it was him giving the performance of his lifetime or the director pulling the performance of his lifetime out of this, but it is elite level performance. And the actor that played Raymond Shaw for that scene where he has to kill his wife, the villains make him kill his wife. Oh God, that was, that was a gut punch too. So, so, you had two folks just given great performances in here. Nine for me. By the way, that was Lawrence Harvey who played Raymond Shaw, just to give him a name check. Thank you. Yes, I can remember off the top of my head. And Jerry, what about you? Heroes of the Manchurian Candidate. I, as you're going to learn going through this, if you haven't learned from my other podcasts, I struggle with movies that are more depressing than they are fun. While Sinatra and Lawrence Harvey did great, you're going to get a higher end score if you're fun to watch for me. And it's not necessarily fun to watch. That's kind of a testament to their acting. But as far as a hero score, I'm going to give it an eight. I'm actually going to join you on eight, Jared, but not for the same reasons. Because what we actually said about this was how memorable was the hero. I think it comes down to he's not James Bond thing, because my memories of this movie before rewatching it was I knew Frank was the lead. I knew it was a brilliant piece of acting. But before I sat down and rewatched the movie, I could not have told you the name of his character. Good point. 
So Ben Marco does not stick in my mind as much as James Bond. So for me, it's the fact that I'd pretty much forgotten about Lawrence Harvey's character, Raymond Shaw. I mean, I knew there was the programmed guy, but I couldn't really remember that much about him from having watched it years ago. So it doesn't really stick in my mind as much, which is why I gave them an eight. But that does not take away from the consummate acting job that they both did and the power of the movie. And with that, I'm going to pass it back to Jared. I always said to Mr. Albrecht then, but that wouldn't make any sense, would it? So, <laughs> Yeah, it gets confusing. All right. That must mean it's time for Category 3. Category 3 is the villain. How menacing or entertaining is your villain? How memorable is your villain? We will start with Alan this time. Talk to me about Joseph Wiseman as Dr. No. That's always an interesting one for me. Jason mentioned earlier, I love the fact that he is a presence throughout the movie. I mean, pretty much right from the beginning, you've got that thing of, you know, his evil presence is felt. As Bond says, you know, what sort of person is it that drives other people to commit suicide with cyanide cigarettes or stand to have their arm broken or whatever? You know, you've got this presence, for want of a better word, throughout the movie, which I think is great up until 20 minutes from the end. And then to be honest, I think he's a bit of a disappointment. He doesn't live up to the implied threat of the voice and the stuff and why everybody is so afraid of him. I think I had in my notes, he comes across more like a creepy evil accountant, <laughs> which is what he is. I mean, he was, he was the accountant for the, for the Chinese tons and stole their money. And, you know, he's not particularly physically threatening. Uh, I like Wiseman's slow, soft delivery. But I think there's others who do it similar, do it better in the Bond movies. So, yeah, the character of Dr. No gets a good score for his presence. Weissman's portrayal of him, his understated portrayal, yeah, just sort of leaves me a little cold. All right. Let's see what Jason has to say. I largely agree with what Alan is saying. I think that his presence in the background is very menacing and it dogs James Bond throughout the course of the story through the first two acts. I remember there's a scene in there where Bond is, he's going through the course of the day, and before he leaves, he sets up all his little, you know, puts the hair on the closet door, and he he puts the um, talcum powder on his, on his attache case and all that stuff. And he, he goes through this whole ritual, and then he goes out through the course of the day and he knows, like Bond is a predator himself. And as a predator, he knows he's being hunted. He knows that there's threats out there. And he comes back. And of course, he sees everything's been messed with. Instead of drinking from the bottle of vodka that's been opened before, he takes a fresh bottle out so he can break the seal on the cap and know that nobody's messed with it. And that shows you like how much mental energy Bond is spending here in this chess match against an opponent he doesn't know who it is and has never seen. And he kind of sits down and, and he has this exhausted, like, end of the day thing where he's just like, oh. you know, he's got to drop the facade and, and recharge a little bit. And so that, when I look at the villain, like, man, he's putting Bond through the paces without even being present. That sets up the big reveal and Dallin's point, the big reveal is a little bit disappointing. It has the elements of the Bond villain where there's always something physically a little off, you know, with him, it's the hands 
but there's something that's just not quite there. And maybe it's the it's the right hand man. There's no odd job. There's no jaws. There's no physically imposing. I mean, he has Professor Dent, man. <laughs> that's like, you know, AKA Professor What's Stutz. <laughs> Professor What's is nuts is not gonna match up against Bond. So physically, there's just nobody there. Like they kind of suggest maybe with his hands he's a match for Bond, but it falls a little flat for me in the third act. It's kind of cool when you see him come in, you don't see his face and you see the hands for the first time when he's doing the creep into their rooms after they've been drugged and knocked out. I thought that was cool, but I'm kind of with Alan. It's it's a good first try for a villain and, and it sets the foundation, but there are better villains to come. I largely agree. I think he's at his best when he's doing voice acting in this movie. But I do give him props for being one of the few Bond villains, and most most of your major Bond villains do rely on a henchman. This one, like as soon as he saw Bond was effing up his guidance system or whatever it was, his temperature control—I don't remember what system Bond was messing with. Up there. <laughs> like he ran up there and started fist to cuffs. He was not afraid to fight James Bond, and that was kind of cool. But anyway, let's shift gears and go into the Manchurian Candidate and get back with Alan. On there's kind of a lot of villainy throughout the movie. Yeah, I mean, when he starts off, you think it's the, the villains of the communist agents who did the brainwashing and then come over and are sort of sending him over. But again, we talked about the reveals of this. It's just the general realization as to who the villain could be and then who the villain is and then what they're up to and then the reveal of the overall plan and then the complete madness that they believe that they can control not just what's happening in the US, but they can control the communist people and that they hired them. And the fact that, that it's Angela Lansbury is just mind-blowing. Because when it starts <laughs> off, you think she's just being basically the senator's pushy, slightly controlling wife trying to get her guy elected. And in the end, she's making a bid for the White House and control of the US intelligence organizations and the military. She is just amazing throughout this movie and like you say you go from oh that's that cute lady from murder she wrote to oh my god she is completely <laughs> and utterly insane well there's two things there's that, there's that line of raymond shaw's when he's talking and he said i didn't always hate my mother when i was a child i just disliked her which gives you some indication of her character and the way she manipulates things and manipulates his, his relationships and decides who's good for him and who isn't and stuff and it's just that controlling thing and it, that control mechanism just gets worse but when they're in the study and they're talking and she just says something about have a game of solitaire and it's like the penny clicks that she's actually the one she's the american operator that they've actually been hinting at and talking about who's controlling him is just uh, yeah a gut punch so absolutely amazing villain I think that, you know, the, the communist agents up front are a bit cartoony and cliched and stuff. And you think, oh, yeah, OK, I'm not really, you know. But the, as a as sort of a hand-waving distraction, they're really good because you sort of focus on them. And then just that general reveal of her and her complete insanity is brilliant. I, I could gush forever about Angela Lansbury in this movie. I don't like it when she's a villain, OK? I love Angela Lansbury. <laughs> and it's kind of funny because, uh, and I'm about to pass it to Jason, but we've been watching a lot of murder she wrote here at the house i've been working my way through the entire 12 season series and we love angela lansbury and it's funny because as i'm watching this 
because I've been watching a lot of Angela Lansbury from the 80s. I'm like, this is she's like 20 something years younger here than she is in the TV series that I'm watching. And she's much, much more attractive in the 80s. And I'm like, that is weird how she got prettier as she got older. And then I thought, well, maybe it's just because she's so darn unlikable in this movie. (laughs) That could have a big thing to do with it. So, yeah, she's. I didn't put this in the trivia, but actually she was only three. At this point, she's only three years older than Lawrence Harvey, who was playing her son. (laughs) That Angela. She's been given a gift. Yeah. Oh, man, I love Angelina's, but it hurts me to see her be a villain. Jason, you get to talk. I, too, hate to see Angela Lansbury as a villain, but it's a testament to her acting skills at what a good villain she is. I think what's brilliant about this film is that we're set in the 50s. We're set. This is like peak Cold War. We're coming out of the gate Cold War, just at the end of of the Korean War. Now the Russians have the bomb. We're well into the Cold War at this point. So it lays it out to you like it's this big villainous plot by the Soviet bloc, right? The Soviets, the Chinese, the North Koreans. And it is. I mean, it, it absolutely is. It's them trying to have some sort of control and manipulate what's going on politically within the United States. But the main villain driving it all is the person that's really seizing that, that moment when the entire country is, is afraid of communists and, and afraid of, of nuclear annihilation. And all she sees is opportunity (laughs) and she seizes it. And she doesn't care. And that's what makes her just, oh, such a poisonous human being. She doesn't care what she does to her son. She doesn't care about really her husband. She cares about getting that power. And she'll do it by whatever means is necessary, including sabotaging her son's love life and chance for happiness. And maybe he's too weak to resist her or she's so strong that she overpowers him, but it gives a whole other element to this psychological warfare that's going on inside Shaw's head during the entire course of this, of this film. Boy, what, what a brilliant performance to take somebody as lovely as Jessica Fletcher, man. It's Jessica Fletcher and turn Angela Lansbury into such a poisonous woman. And just this, disgusting villain dressed to the nines in high-class society. Well done. Okay. Now we will go back and score these villains. Alan, Dr. Mill. Good foundational villain. Some of the pieces are there we're going to see, but didn't really carry over. We're going to get a lot better So in this series. So he gets a seven from me. All right, Jason. I'm going to throw the dart and hit it exactly where Alan put it. Seven for me as well. I think this is a good barometer setting the foundation coming out of the gate. And we'll have some that are better and some that are worse. So we'll land him at a seven. Let's make it three sevens for exactly the reasons Jason laid out. I completely agree with him. Moving over to Manchurian Candidates. Villain score, Alan. It's got to be a 10. Just an amazing, amazing performance. All right. Alan's got it at 10. Jason. 
Is it a 10? I'm going to give it a nine. I'm going to give it a nine. Super solid. A little too much campiness from the other Russian element of it. Although they were fun too. I really, I really like this, the psychiatrist guy, the, the bald guy that was, <laughs> let's take down this capitalist regime. And, but before we do that, my wife's got a list of things she wants me to get <laughs> yeah. while I'm here. You know, the, oh, there was that, oh, that other scene where he goes, uh, where the one guy's insisting on, well, we should try it on somebody. He should kill somebody. And he just stares at, at the, <laughs> you know, at the doctor and, and, and the doctor realizes, oh, shoot, I might have just put myself on the hit list. <laughs> and he's like, sense of humor, man. You got to have a sense of humor. <laughs> uh, a nine. I'm just going to settle on a nine and be done with it. I could talk myself in circles on this all day. And I have to edit it. All right. So <laughs> <laughs> I will say again, it hurts me to see Angela Lansbury as a villain. Like, I don't like it. <laughs> Which is kind of like, again, a testament to the acting, but I'm going with an eight and no one can talk me out of it. It's an eight for me. Boo. <laughs> and with Alan's disapproval, we will move to category four. For category four, we're going to look at the overall spectacle of the movie. So we're thinking about things like how visually engaging was the film overall, things like the stunts, the effects, the cinematography, the music, I guess all that sort of stuff. Just a, you know, a general feel for all the sort of artistic elements that make up the movie and thinking about it as a visual experience. So, Joe, what's your opinions of the spectacle of Dr. No? Well, a lot of it is kind of what I mentioned earlier. It's the spectacle of world travel and lush settings, like the way we meet James Bond at this very high-end casino, and then he's off to Jamaica for beautiful settings you mentioned music alan and i know a thing or two about well we don't know it we've talked a thing or two i don't know that we know a thing or two about it. that was a dangerous statement we do definitely do not know <laughs> we have opinions on we definitely have opinions <laughs> but if we factor in music we factor in the scenes and the settings the costuming there's a lot of really solid spectacle in dr no now is it without its problems no there's some very obvious rear projection as would be found in the early sixties for some of it. And some would argue that's part of its charm and I might be in that camp, but I will admit that it's there. I think we can all admit that the dragon was ridiculous, <laughs> but you know, it might've been just enough to spook some people who were already on edge back then. Uh, the fact that they went all out to put like the little winglets on it though, just really cracks me up every time. But overall, we are talking about Ken Adam, right? For set design, that's points right there. Just, I mean, the man made a room with like a chair and a table with a spider in a cage in it. Like, that's it. That's all that's in there. Like, really cool. <laughs> like, how do that's, that's something to talk about. So, there's a lot of factors going into the spectacle of Dr. No that are working in its favor and very few that work against it. And that's my two cents, Alan. All right. I will not have anything bad said about the dragon. It was a really scary, man. <laughs> so, Jason. I think Jared really hit the nail on the head with it. As we're talking about this, I'm realizing that the challenge here, I think, with this show is going to be, in some cases, I want to compare the spectacle of Dr. No against the spectacle of the Manchurian Candidate. 
in some ways, I'm comparing these categories against other Bond movies. You know, my mind starts slipping that way. So I'm trying to look at it from Dr. No's spectacle versus Manchurian Canada's spectacle. It's interesting that we're kind of at that cusp of filmmaking where you have color and black and white are still kind of a mix in theaters at the time. So being in color by itself, I mean, obviously having the color in Jamaica is a must have. And it kind of sets the tone for the whole thing. There are dark elements within the movie and there are light elements within the movie and and fun elements. So it's kind of a mixed bag, but you've got the music, you've got a color, you got a beautiful setting, you got you got some pretty good for the time action sequences. So I'll have a good solid uh, spectacle rating for Dr. No. Yeah, I'm with you in the, you know, you have to sort of think back to 1962 and what else was coming out in 1962, as you said, the Manchurian candidates, black and white. So you've immediately got that contrast, but also just movies at the time. I know we were sort of coming out of the Technicolor age and stuff, but this was sort of a more natural color, a more vibrant color, I think. Just the impact I think it had. And yeah, the, the travelogue side of it, um, the introduction to Jamaica and stuff was just, of course, as good. So yeah. Difficult to compare. And as you said, it's actually very difficult to think of a Bond movie in isolation without thinking about the 24 others that we're going to go watch as we move through this series. All right, let's move on to The Manchurian Candidate. What do you make of the spectacle of The Manchurian Candidate, Jared? This was more complex because it's really driven by the thriller aspect of it. That's what's the most engaging part is getting the little pieces of the story, you know, does the score stand out to me like a James Bond score would? No, not a lot of movies do, but no, I don't really remember the score all that much. I do remember some good filming techniques that they used, especially during the brainwashing scenes. I thought were really cool. You didn't need the color like you do for Jamaica. This is black and white in, where were they? New York city or Boston or I don't know. Some American urban city doesn't need a ton of color to carry it. I think the only thing, and I mentioned it earlier, I do feel like the Manchurian Candidate lulls a little bit more. It's about 15 minutes longer than Dr. No, and it feels about a half hour longer than Dr. No. Dr. No has a certain zip to its pace, although it it has little lulls here there, especially when you start comparing them to Bond movies (laughs) of the future. But we're not doing that. But it does have a certain zippiness to its pace that I feel like Manchurian Candidate, I get what they were doing. They didn't want to rush their hand, no pun intended. They didn't want to play it too fast. They wanted to meet out those clues and take you along for the ride. And for the most part, they do a pretty good job. There were a couple of times I was like, okay, yeah, no, I got it. We can can proceed. But overall, it's a good looking movie and it does hold your attention for the most part. So we'll see. Jason, what's your thoughts on the look of the Manchurian Candidate? Like Jared was saying, if you look at the production value between the two movies, like Dr. No did a lot using Jamaica as the backdrop and and they got a lot out of that. I think what was really interesting about Manchurian Candidate is that they had some scenes that are in very confined spaces, like the lobby of that hotel during the psychological conditioning of the soldiers that set piece that they had built up where they were learning about our hydrangeas or something. What really holds your attention is it's, you've got the interesting contrast of the soldiers sitting in there 
doing weird things like with their hands and or how they're reacting to the situation. You have the women, the old women that are role players in this thing. And it's like, and they're pretty cold hearted at the end of the day. And then you have up in the, the stands, the Soviet and Chinese communists that are watching this whole thing. And to Jared's point, this runs long, but it holds your attention because you're like, you're not sure like what's going to happen. And then when it's suggested, oh, have him kill one of these soldiers, you're like, holy cow. And just the way that it's done dispassionately and how the one soldier just kind of allows it to happen. It's so disturbing that it really, I, I think the next time I'm in a hotel lobby and there's a bunch of flowers around, I'm, <laughs> I'm going to start thinking twice. So, you know, I think it's just kind of two different approaches to using production value. Like you said, Alan's kind of like a travelogue with Dr. No. And then with Manchurian Candidate, there are a lot of confined scenes in train cars or in hotel rooms or, you know, in this case, the set piece of the hotel lobby. So different uses of production value, but, but both very good. It's interesting what you say. I mean, you say Manchurian Candidate is very much a noir urban movie. And I think that plays exceptionally well with those close spaces. You know, the fight in the apartment's another good example of, you know, something happening in a confined space. I think where it loses it slightly is when we get to the flashback of Shaw meeting his girlfriend, later his wife, and it's all in the countryside and stuff. And it feels washed out because it is a black and white scene as opposed to, yes, Jared, them nodding off as well. You even nodded off when she took her shirt off. Oh, man, I missed it. <laughs> um, but, you know, I think when it's in that, those pastoral scenes, there's not many of them, but it sort of loses some of the coherence, I think, of the movie as against the way it feels for all, the, like you say, the urban stuff or the train or, you know, Madison Square Garden at the end with the political rally and everything's in your face. I think when it's all in your face, it works exceptionally well. I think it just has a couple of little lulls along the way. So... With those few thoughts, let's get to the scores, shall we? Spectacles. So, Jared, what would your score for Dr. No, the spectacle of Dr. No be? Okay, my initial thought was it's very strong, kind of starting it at a seven. I bump it up to an eight because of especially music. I want to go more, but I want to... It's weird, Alan. Like, if you asked me to overall spectacle on Dr. No, just me and you right now, which you kind of did, I'd say a nine, but I'm going to leave it at an eight because I need to leave it in the 1962 vein. Does that make sense? Like, <laughs> like I yeah. think there's nostalgia around it that gets me to a nine. But if I'm honest with myself and I'm looking at it just from the 1962 snapshot, I'm giving it an eight. If that made any sense. It's an eight. I think it was an eight. All right, Jason, what would you give the spectacle of Dr. No? I think I'd give it an eight as well. Looking at it through the 1962 lens. If I was going to the movies in 1962 and I had to make a choice between what I want to go see Dr. No or Manchurian Candidate, I would be really intrigued by the, the vibrant color, the crisp pace, a little bit more action elements. And I think you guys brought up a good point with Manchurian Candidate that it does have a little bit of a lull in there. And there are a couple other things within Manchurian Candidate, which I'll get into later, that take it down just a notch for me. So I'm going to go eight for Dr. No. Okay. And I'm going to join you guys on eight. So that's three eights for the spectacle of Dr. No. So 
Let's move it over to the Manchurian candidate, Jared. What would uh, you going to give the spectacle of the Manchurian candidate? I like it for what it is quite a bit. It does a good job of holding you through a lot of things for its thriller story to get told. But in the end, it's not as crisp. It's not as engaging. It's not as colorful. Its music is completely forgettable. I can't remember anything about the music right now, to be honest with you. So I will say it is better than a good TV movie, which would have been a five, which gets it to a six. I think I'll leave it there. I think I'm going to keep it at a six. Okay. Jason? I'll be a little more forgiving and give it a seven, but I I do agree with Jared. I don't, and Jared has a better ear for the music, the musical production of films than I do. And don't laugh at that, Alan. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just being honest. Sorry. I'm just being honest. I can't recall any of the the music from it as well. What kind of takes me out of it a little bit, there's some things that I would have liked to have seen played out a little bit more. We mentioned the psychiatrist at the beginning of this discussion that sat in with the military brass as Major Marco was recounting his dreams. And, you know, I was in Army Intelligence as well, and that was a very brave thing that Major Marco did. And I'm sure at that point in time, that was going to end in, okay, you're not going to be in military intelligence because, you know, there's something not quite right with you. So he showed some courage along with some vulnerability. And I would like to see the psychiatrist play into that a little bit more, a little bit more of a, of an interaction there. I could have used a little bit of less of, uh, was it Jennifer Lee with her character? Didn't really feel the chemistry between them. It seemed kind of very rushed and kind of took away from the story a little bit. It seemed like there was a female lead in there because it's like, oh, it's Frank Sinatra. We got to have somebody for him, you know, to hook up with during the course of the film. And I don't think we really needed it. There were just a couple little hiccups for, at least for me, from my perspective, that took it out a little bit. Right. Well, actually, I'm going with you, Jason. I gave it a seven as well. I, I think partly because I said, you know, I think the, the close-up noir stuff worked for a large proportion of the film, but there was that bit in the middle where it just lagged, and it was like, that just seemed, I think they could have done that flashback sequence more in keeping with the rest of the movies. I mean, what the hell do I know? You know I can't really teach John Frankenheimer much but uh, about directing, but I don't know, that, that piece of it just didn't work for me, so uh, I, I give it a seven. And with that, I think we're back to Jared to talk about our favorite spy moments. That's right. We're going to hit category five. Category five is best spy moment. And we will start with Dr. No and Jason gets to go first. What's your favorite spy moment of Dr. No? I don't know if it's so much the spy, but it's more the assassination moment. (laughs) When he realizes he's going to be victimized at Ms. Taro's house and totally turns the tables on Professor Dent, and that is such a cold-blooded moment as he's just sitting there playing solitaire, common theme between our two movies, by the way, playing solitaire, waiting for the would-be assassin to arrive and just say, F me, no F you, and put a, couple of, put a couple of slugs into him. I thought that's the coolest moment of the film. All right, Alan, what's your favorite spy moment from Dr. No? Actually, Jason already talked it through almost beat by beat earlier when he was talking about Bond setting up the hotel room. Over the years, come on, who hasn't done that when you've been in a hotel room? It's actually pulled a hair. Not that I've got any left. You can tell I've done it too many times. Um, 
you know, as a kid, I certainly did that. You know, if I was going out and I wanted to know if my parents had been in my room, I you know, pull the hair out, put it on the closet door or on the on the door to you know see if they'd been in there. The talcum powder on the briefcase. Just again, Bond not using gadgets, just using his training, using his spycraft, thinking things through, knowing that somebody's going to come into his room. How can he check on that? Just using the objects and the common stuff around him. I think. I always love it when we see, not just Bond, but in any spy movie, where we actually see them, the heroes using spycraft, fieldcraft. For me, that was, that was my introduction to it, was seeing it in this movie. So I love that scene and never tire of it. I know Jared and I put some hairs across our doors. Yes, indeed. Uh, I could pick either one of you guys as my favorite spy movie moment just for a variety's sake though i will toss out sort of the bigger action piece i like bond escaping from his cell and then you know sticking it to dr no's plan and blowing the whole place up you know taking the easy low-hanging fruit of the big <laughs> big action beat at the end of the movie all right let's shift gears and go into the manchurian candidate what's your favorite spy moment from manchurian candidate jason you know, I think the favorite spy moment for me was probably one of the better character moments, I think, for Frank Sinatra as Marco. It comes when he is at his lowest ebb, right? When his boss comes in and basically tells him, you're fired until you get stuff under control. And then he's on the train. So he's just really down in the doldrums. But the moment he gets into that fist fight with that, that Chinese cook or, or that, that Korean cook or whatever, you know, that was the spy. He comes alive, man. His fists start flying. And there's this instinct in his mind that just triggers. You know, he's just kind of stumbling through it. And he's at his lowest ebb. But that moment just snaps him back in. And he's like, I know this guy. There's something wrong with him. And he just lets those instincts take over. You know, the fight's really cool and an important action piece for the movie. But more than that, it sets him on a course that like, no, I, I know I'm right on this thing. I don't know why I know, but I know. And so to me, that was the moment for me was that fight that triggers that soldier side of him to come back. Nice one. Alan? I'm going to take an, a, a, another Frank Sinatra moment. For me, it's the moment that he realizes that the... Queen of Diamonds is the key. And he figures that out. And then he figures out how to use a stacked deck of Queen of Diamonds to try and deprogram Shaw. And then at the end of that, he lets Shaw go, not knowing whether the deprogramming has actually worked or not, and has to follow through. And pretty much right until the very end, he's actually he's still not sure whether he actually did manage to deprogram him or not, or whether the Shaw's still under the control of his mother and the brainwashing. The way Sinatra played, played it, but also the way that for that character that he has to trust his self-belief that he found the key and that he was successful and have faith in what he did, even though he's got no absolute proof that what he did actually worked, and to let that guy out and go out and possibly commit another assassination without even knowing where that's going to be or how he can stop him, I thought just took huge balls to do that. And I thought it was a great, great sequence. All right. I will add my favorite sequence will be the one I find most memorable. And we talked about it a little bit before is the brainwashing scene and how it's very cleverly shot between 
what the soldiers believe they're seeing with the flower ladies versus what's really going on with the other communists in the room. And, and the way that was filmed was very clever because you're like, what is going on? You start to realize, okay, this is what they see, but that's not really there. This is what's really there. And just like Jason said, when he very casually said, why don't you go kill your buddy over there? And he was like, sure. And his buddy didn't even care. And then this was 1962 guys, that blood splatter from when he killed him. I was like, whoa, like 62, which made me do a little research. I was like, when did we start rating movies? And it was like 1972 or something like that. Editor's note, it was 1968. And now back to the show. So where movie ratings came in, because I was like, man, that was, I was like, wow, for 62, that was pretty violent. But it's not as, well, the violence does stick with me, but what sticks with me more so is the whole way they filmed it with sort of going back and forth between the flower ladies and the, the Soviet control guys. Like, I thought it was very clever. So that was my favorite spy movie moment. Although the good guys are not winning in that moment at all. <laughs> so, again, I didn't put it in the trivia, but they actually filmed that scene three times completely. And then edit. Yeah, and then edit the cuts. Uh-huh. <laughs> that makes sense. That makes sense. Yeah. That was very clever. That way you get that, yeah, you get the reactions you want without necessarily, you can change a lot of factors and keep certain reactions. That's very clever. Yeah. Very clever. All right, let's score these things. So thinking about your best spy movie moment, let's go back to Dr. No. Alan. It's Bond, it's spycraft. It's stuff that I did myself. He taught me how to do that. I don't know. It was a nine out of 10 for me. It's just one of the consummate spy moments in, in, in I think, I know we're not thinking ahead, but it just had a huge impact on me as I, when I first saw it as a kid, continues to do so. So yeah, nine. There's definitely something special about seeing James Bond do something that you can actually replicate. That you can do, yeah. (laughs) I can do that when I get home, yeah. Yeah. I don't have a laser watch, damn it. (laughs) Or an auto gyro, but but I can use a can of talcum powder. And the days I had hair in my head, I could use hair. All right, Jason, you actually had another great moment of Bond laying a trap for the guy who laid a trap for him. He trace busted to the guy's trace buster. What did you score? I'm going to give it a nine as well. You know, as we look at the James Bond film franchise, we haven't quite hit that Bond formula yet. With Dr. No coming out of the gate, we've got certain elements of it. But that moment, that moment where he assassinates Professor Dent is probably one of the elite moments in Bond cinematic history for me. That's the kind of Bond that, that we want to see. The detective, but now he's a detective with a license to kill. And he breaks out the license in that that scene. And I loved it. And while I did throw out the big action set piece at the end, my favorite is actually the same as Jason's. It's the most Bondian moment for me. And I want to remind the listening audience, too, that in 1962, part of what set James Bond apart as a movie hero is that heroes didn't do that in the movies in 1962. They didn't lay a trap and then just plug a, a guy cold-blooded like that back in the day. You have to factor in that was relatively new. And he toyed with him, too. He let him dive for the... That, oh, oh, you oh, have bullets? Oh, I'm not. <laughs> so close, Professor Dent. So close. Anyways, I say that to say, you know what? I'll absolutely join you guys on the nines. That's It's setting a very high standard that luckily, for the most part, the franchise will continue to meet for the next several years. <laughs> 60-something years as of this recording. 
All right, let's look at the scoring for Manchurian Candidate. Back to Alan. Yeah, I found this one a bit more difficult to score. Like I said, I thought you know I thought it was a, a real ballsy move, but again, I guess you could play around with card deck when you when you get home. But I didn't have, know anybody that needed deep programming, as far as I knew, knew. So I don't know. I think it was a cool moment, but not quite as iconic as the Bond one. So I gave it an eight. All right, Jason. I'd say that that fight scene was actually really well choreographed and was a better action sequence than I thought I was going to get in that film. So I'm going to go eight with it as well. I mean, he did the Roger Moore knife hands and everything. So we, so we had that going for us. So yeah, give me a, let's give old blue eyes an eight there for that scene. I would say the fight scene in Manchurian Candidate was better than the fight scene in Doctor No. I agree. Oh, true. I agree. Yeah. Better choreographed, better edited. I would put it up there with the the fight against Grant in From Russia with Love. I think it was yeah. like at that level. Yeah, yeah. I would, well, like I would Alan mentioned earlier in his trivia facts, you know, a lot of people consider this to be the first usage of a karate scene in American cinema. You know, so that's something for sure. Yeah. Now, I picked the programming scene. I just thought that was super memorable. But it's not super energy, right? That's the whole challenge that we have going on here. It doesn't have the energy that you know bond laying a trap for this dude kind of has and it's i mean that's even bond sitting in a chair and it has energy so you gotta gotta factor that in so i say that to say i will give it um it's very memorable so i'll give it a seven all righty and i'll give it back to alan thank you so i'm actually got the fun round where we can talk about stuff that maybe we didn't like this is the deduction round so we can take marks off for things that we either thought was ridiculous or just didn't really like or understand around the movie. We'll be interested to see what impact that has on the overall scores at the end. All right. So, Jared, anything that you would like to deduct from Dr. No? If the listeners of this program listen to Jason and I's action film face-off, you'll learn that I don't do a lot of deductions in the deduction round. It has to be really, really glaring <laughs> for me. Because otherwise, I do it all in the scoring rounds. Thinking back on Dr. No, I would say if I was to fix anything, maybe the dragon, but not enough for me to take points away. So uh, I feel like I've done that in the scoring. So I'm going to leave this one alone. All right. Jason. No, I'm not going to take any points off of Dr. No. I think that everything that I've penalized, I've, I've penalized in the in the regular scoring rounds. We can get into some of the the language and the attitudes of the day, but you know, we gotta, we gotta look at it through the lens. I think in 1962, let those pieces go. So I'm, I'm just going to let it lie. All right. I'm going to take something off for Dr. No. I'm only going to take one point off, but it's something that really bugs me. It's the sound editing in a couple of scenes. In the aforementioned Professor Dent scene, there's a a point in that where suddenly when Dent's speaking, it's like he's in an echo chamber. But more egregious is the guy on the boat. I knew it. <laughs> the, I don't know. It's kind of got a charm. It's like so bad as <laughs> yeah, we yeah. laugh about it now. We do. But yeah, the, the, but it's so obvious. It's like, why wasn't that cleaned up in editing or at any point on any print? So yeah, the, the sad editing bloopers, they take me out in the movie for a split second. Oh, we're back. We're back with the dogs. Both in a hand. Still microphone voice when he's not on the microphone. Yeah, when he takes the microphone, takes the, phone, uh, the speakerphone away, and yeah, it's the same voice. You coming out? 
All right, then. We'll be back. We'll be back with the dogs. Full speed ahead. Um, so, yeah, I'm taking one point off for the sound editing. You know, fair enough. We didn't talk about that in the regular discussion. That, yep, that, that's fair. that is, if you go back, something they've clearly done a lot better on in future Bond movies. But, yeah, it sticks out in Dr. No, doesn't it? It does, it does. yeah. All right, let's go back to Jared. Any points that you want to take off from the Manchurian Candidate? I think it deserves to be left alone in the same way that I left Dr. No alone. My biggest bugaboo when I look back on it is sort of that slower pacing. I just wish it was a little more tightly edited, just a little crisper that could have done it. But again, I kind of took that out on regular scoring, so I'm not going to beat it up in the deduction round. All right, Jason. I'm going to take a point off for Major Marco being a craptacular infantry officer, man. Like the, <laughs> the whole That's reason. Cool. Yeah. yeah. Like, yeah, I think any other infantry officer it would have been like, oh, we should take that ridge line that goes there because there might be quicksand that way. I'd be like, negative. <laughs> we're, we're, we're going that way. We're, you just don't ever walk up on top of a ridge. Well, the thing line. is, he, say, he says, no, we're not going to do it. It's a bad tactical move. And then he does it. And then he does it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. he does it anyway. It's it's like, no, that is the worst tactical move. That is the worst decision that you, you could possibly make. And when we see him at first, I don't know if you all caught wind of this, but they're running across the river. He falls. He falls, yeah. like, into the water. And that's okay. Like, I mean... We've all done it, you know, if you've been in the military long enough, but you never, he lets his rifle go into the water to stop himself from falling. You never let your weapon go into that water. You take that header and you keep that rifle above the water. And that, and the fact that he didn't do that and nobody, uh, you know, there's nobody on the set is like, "Mm -mm, that would never, never, ever happen with a soldier. That I was like minus one right out of the gate. <laughs> I have to laugh, Chase, because I remember watching it and I turned to Johanna. I was like, I think they got about 20 feet before they got captured. Yeah. <laughs> like, I got this great plan. Oh, <laughs> I mean, just like all of them, just had the crap beat out of them, too. Just did funny. not go to play it. Yeah, fair yeah. enough. They fair were enough. pretty much the worst platoon ever, weren't they? I mean, it wasn't just him. They were like, nobody fought back. <laughs> all right. Well, I'm actually taking one off the Manchurian candidate, but for a different reason. And you sort of touched on it earlier, Jason, the Janet Lee subplot. There was no point to it. Probably part of what slowed it down for me. But she got star billing and Angela Lansbury didn't. And a what? <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, but she got that, that thing where it's like with Angela Lansbury. Yeah, but she can, you, but, you yeah, know, but, you but get she's that not on the post. She's not even on the posters. It's Janet Lee all over the posters. Janet Lee's name before the name of the movie. You go on IMDb, it's starring Frank Sinatra, Lawrence Harvey, and Janet Lee. I gotta uh, wonder if that's not a method to protect the twist. Maybe, but I don't know. But that subplot was like, you could take that whole subplot out of the movie and nothing changes. Mm-hmm. I gotta tell you, I honestly thought for a minute, I was like, I wonder if Lee's character was part of it. Like, she's, yeah, she that would have made sense. That would have made sense. And so I would have thought that was cool, but like, nah, I, I didn't really get it. No, no. I thought the same thing. I said, oh, 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 she's the control. She's the control. control. Yeah. Wrong. Yeah. (laughs) So if that was a bit of deflection, I guess it sort of worked from that point of view. But I don't know. It didn't feel like there was any payoff to it. Honestly, more so than protecting the plot twist, which could have been a factor. I've just been looking at some stuff. I was like, 
when did Psycho come out? It came out two years before this movie. Yeah, I know. I mean, it was, was, yes, it was a month. Was yeah, I mean, more than hot. one sense. She's yeah. hot and she, she was hot. hot. <laughs> yeah, again, more than one sense, but yes. Yeah. That, yeah, I think that's more of it, Al. I think she was just real. Oh, I'm sure it was a marketing thing, but. Yeah, yeah. in the moment from Psycho, and they were like, let's get her name on this. Ab- yeah. yeah. Story-wise, it just made no sense to me. So I'm afraid they lost the point for that. They lost the point for the pointless subplot. glorified red herring i would say okay all right folks that is the end of all six of our categories now don't worry you haven't been keeping up with the math at home we do that for you here at james bond versus spy movies and looking at the judges scorecards the winner of this premiere episode of James Bond versus Spy Movies with a score of 126 to 123 is Dr. No. Oh my goodness, was that tight. <laughs> well, congratulations to Dr. No. So, Jared, what's your very brief thoughts on that? You just said it. Wow, that was tight. Oh, yeah, that I didn't see it coming so close. Like, I really liked Manchurian Candidate. I thought it was very good, but like, much like everyone who probably listens to our podcast, I hold Dr. No in extremely high esteem. And for Manchurian Candidate to get that close, very respectful. And Jason, what's your thoughts to that uh, result? I was the same way. I kind of thought this was going to be, um, you know, in the 60s with Sean Connery just kind of owning the Bond moment that whoever's going up against it's going to be a punching bag, but that was not the case. We had two bangers coming out of the gate and I can't wait to see what we have in store for our next show. I will tell you in a second. I can say, you know, I I sort of came up with the list. I mean, originally the idea of putting Bond against the Manchurian candidate was the one that appealed to me and sort of thought about putting this whole show together based around that. Because I had such good memories of the Manchurian candidate, but I didn't remember it as being that good as it was. And as compelling as it was and thoughtful as it was. So in some respects, I'm not surprised it's close, but I'm a little surprised it's that close. Literally, I think if we hadn't, two of us hadn't taken two points off the Manchurian candidate, it would have been just a There's point between. between. Frank would have kept that rifle out of the water. Yeah. <laughs> Frank, way. If they'd have given Janet Lee a couple of lines to explain her presence, it could have been a different story. So yeah, very, very close. Well, thanks to everybody for listening. I I hope you enjoyed it. Be sure to join us for our next episode where to answer Jason's question, we move on to 1963, where we will be comparing From Russia with Love with one of my favorite all-time spy movies, Charade. Or Charade. Me too, too, Alan. That movie is so good. (laughs) This is going to be tough. Until then, I'm Alan Porter, and you can find me on social media at James Bond Lexicon, or you can... Check out the James Bond Lexicon.online website, which is a companion website to the James Bond Lexicon book. Jason, where can we find you online? Well, you can find me hanging out with these folks at, at Rogue Agents here. I'm also on Longbox Crusade on a whole bunch of shows there, including Action Film Face Off, near and dear to my heart. And if you want to reach out to me personally, you can find me at Jason Albrick on uh, Instagram or at Jason Albrick on Threads. Thanks. And Jared, where can we find you? 
You can find me, Jared Albrecht, the Yard Sale Artist at Yard Sale Artist on X, Facebook, and Instagram. You can check out my artwares at www.theyardsaleartist.com. Of course, we appreciate it if you subscribe to On Her Majesty's Secret Podcast, and we'd love to hear from you. You can leave ratings and reviews on however you're listening to this. And of course, you can check out at OHMS Pod on X, formerly known as Twitter. And if you enjoy this format, definitely check out Action Film Face Off on the Long Box Crusade. It is very similar in format. Thanks for tuning in. We appreciate you listening. And until the next episode, keep your scuba suit wet and, and your, your martini, martini dry. dry. when I was with Am in Tokyo, we had an interesting experience. Outtakes. Thank you, Miss Moneypenny. That's all. That's all. Pronunciation point. You might want to redo that first line. It's Savile Row. Agree to disagree, Alan. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what do I know? And Steve Harvey, as you just said. <laughs> what was his name? Lawrence Harvey. Thank you.